As we go to open God's Word together, let's ask Him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Lord, Your Word is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony is sure, making the simple wise. Your precepts are right, rejoicing our hearts. Your commandments are pure, enlightening our eyes. The fear of You is clean, enduring forever. Your rules are true and righteous altogether. They are more to be desired than fine gold and sweeter than honey. By them your servants are warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So would you teach that word to us now by your Spirit, Father, and show us Christ, we pray, in His name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 3. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here this morning. We've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, You'll find that on uh, page 1066 of most of our Pew Bibles. And it's between the books of Matthew and Luke, the second book of the New Testament. And so we're in chapter 3, and we want to begin our reading at verse 20 and read through the end of the chapter. So Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 20, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Then he went home, that is Jesus, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister, and mother. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Uh, One of the reasons that we sang Psalm 45 to uh, prepare ourselves to come to this word is it's a song that celebrates the beauty of the king. And even in this song that celebrates all the beauty of the king of God's people and that looks forward ultimately to Christ the king as that setting of the psalm rightly concludes at the end, the psalm also reminds us that despite all his beauty, there are those who hate the king. 
There are enemies of the king. There are those who do not understand his beauty, don't understand his glory, who hate him and do all they can to oppose him. And that's something that we see in this passage. The the passage reminds us that there are those who are opposed to Jesus. When we began this chapter, we remember that there are great crowds that follow him. There's such great crowds that they, they press in around him and he has to make preparations to make sure that this crowd doesn't crush him. Um, there are many who loved him and came to him from all over the surrounding world. There are a circle of disciples who are committed to him, uh, who come to him to learn from him and through whom he will work to extend the kingdom of God. There are those who are on his side. There are also those who are against him. There are people who, for their own reasons, are opposed to his mission. There are some well-meaning but mistaken opponents, like those members of his family, that come to get him in this passage. And there are hostile and wicked opponents, such as the scribes from Jerusalem, who come to make malicious accusations against him. So what do we see our Lord doing in this passage? He's really correcting these misunderstandings, correcting the errors of those who misunderstand His mission and His ministry, and setting the record straight about who He is and what He's come to do. And that's how we want to think about this passage and what the Lord is doing to correct those who are wrong about the ministry He is making in this world, about the mission that He is on. And who does He correct? Well, first he corrects malicious accusers, uh, those who utter terrible accusations about how he's doing the work that he's doing. So we first want to think about those malicious accusers. We also want to think about the monstrous sinners that the Lord corrects who would blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And finally, he corrects his mistaken family who think they're doing him a service by coming to seize him and to bring him home. So that's how we want to think about this passage. Jesus corrects malicious accusers, monstrous sinners, and mistaken family. Um, We see him first confronting malicious accusers. Here I have in mind not his family. Uh, We'll get to his family at the end. The story of his family is sort of like the bread in a sandwich in this text. Uh, The text begins with the family, concludes with the family. In the middle are these scribes. And that's who I really want to think about, these malicious accusers uh, who come from Jerusalem, we're told. Uh, In verse 22, these are scribes who come down from Jerusalem. These are the heavy hitters from the religious establishment. So far, Christ has been engaged with the local Pharisees, uh, who are the local experts on these things. But now we read that scribes have been sent down from Jerusalem. We should see these more as the heavy hitters being sent from the Sanhedrin to really put an end to whatever is happening up there in Galilee. That people seem to be led astray by this popular teacher, and they as the religious experts are going to go there and set the situation right. Reading that there are scribes coming down from Jerusalem will kind of like be reading in something that Jesuits were coming from the Vatican. Um, You'd be thinking, okay, these are the heavy hitters. These are the religious establishment being set in to set things right. And that's what they've come to do. They come spoiling for a fight. They come particularly to undo whatever Jesus has been doing in Galilee. 
And that's somewhat difficult because of the nature of what Jesus has been doing. Um, What is the one act that they are particularly targeting in this passage? What is the one act that Jesus does that really speaks about his power and authority like nothing else? Well, it's this, that he drives out demons. That he drives out demons without apparent effort. He commands them and they obey. They cannot resist him. They can't put up a fight. When he tells them to shut up, they have to shut up. That above everything else is what people are looking to and saying, there's power. There's authority. Even the devils have to listen to him. So if you're one of these religious heavy hitters coming up from Jerusalem and you want to attack his work, you can't very well go around saying he's not doing powerful work. Everyone there knows he's doing powerful work. So what do they do? They don't attack the work. They attack the source of the work. They say, sure he's doing mighty things. Sure he's doing powerful things. But do you know by whose power he's doing it? He's doing it by the power of the devil. Sure, it's powerful, but the devil's powerful. And the work he's doing is the devil's work. Sure, he's powerful, but he's some kind of magician. He's some kind of sorcerer. He's tapped into that occult power. That's what they go around saying. And, and their accusation is really two, in two kind of parts. They say, Satan has taken hold of him. Satan has possessed him. And having possessed him, Satan is working through him. And this is the story that they're going around and telling. Right? We're told in verse 22 that they come down saying these things. And that's repeated in verse 30. They were going around saying these things. And it doesn't just mean they were saying them, but they said them and they were kept saying them. They said them to wherever they went. This was the story they kept perpetuating. He's possessed by the devil, and it's the devil who's doing this work. Um, He's a wicked sorcerer and magician. That's how he's doing these things. And if you look through the rabbinic writings, they continue to push that, that lie about Jesus. He came and did mighty things as a sorcerer, as a magician. Those evil things that you are not to do in the Old Testament. That's how they're trying to belittle and explain the work that Jesus is doing. Wherever they can go, they go around saying that. He's possessed by the devil, and it's by the devil that he drives out demons. And so what does Jesus do to correct this? He corrects both aspects of them. Uh, He takes them in the opposite order. First, he comes to correct them about by what power he's doing these things. That's the first That's the first thing he wants to talk to them about. And you'll notice that he confronts them directly in verse 23. They've been going around saying these things about him. But what does he do? He calls them to himself to correct them about these things. He directly confronts them where they were unwilling to directly confront him. 
He comes and makes a direct confrontation and speaks to them in parables. Normally when we think of parables, we think about the story like a good Samaritan or something else. But here it, it means it in the Old Testament proverb sense, that it was a, a wisdom saying. He's going to come and say to them wise things that show them what they're saying makes no sense. And that's really where he begins. They're saying he's driving demons out by the power of the devil, by Beelzebul, which is probably a common nickname for the devil that they had at the time. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't use the nickname that they use. He gives them the name that Mark gave him at the beginning of the gospel when the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan. And who is Satan? That name means the adversary. That's to remind us of who Satan always is to the people of God. He's the adversary. But I think for the argument that Jesus is making, it makes even more sense for him to call him the adversary because it exposes how their argument makes absolutely no sense. So Jesus calls him to himself. He says, okay, let me get this straight. Your theory is that the adversary has become his own adversary. That Satan is now driving out Satan. That's your, that's your theory. That makes no sense. What is Satan's goal to drive out Satan? Why would the adversary become his own adversary? What you're describing is civil war. It's interesting that Abraham Lincoln, before the Civil War, made a famous speech quoting these words and saying, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And what was his point? We're moving towards civil war in this country. If we don't change something, we're going towards civil war. That's what, that's what the religious leaders are essentially saying. There's a civil war in, in Satan's kingdom. Christ saying, how does that make sense? What is Satan accomplishing if Satan is driving out Satan? If Satan is driving out Satan, then his kingdom is divided. If Satan is driving out Satan, we all might, just, must, we might as well just sit down and eat popcorn and watch. Because what does that mean? It means his house is coming to an end. It means his kingdom is coming to an end. If he's fighting against himself, then no more can come of that kingdom. See, Jesus is just bringing to bear wisdom and saying, that can't possibly be what's happening. That makes no sense. A house divided against itself cannot stand. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. This isn't a a civil war inside the kingdom of the devil. And then Jesus explains what is happening. This is not the adversary against the adversary in some nonsensical civil war. This is a rival kingdom that has come against Satan's kingdom. What you're seeing and witnessing is not a civil war inside the kingdom of Satan, but a kingdom that's come to make war on the kingdom of Satan. This is a rival kingdom. And what does the fact that Satan is being driven out in all these contexts show? It shows that this rival kingdom that's come against him is a stronger kingdom. That he might be mighty, but now has come a mightier kingdom. 
It's not civil war or rivalry that's destroying his kingdom. It's the kingdom of God coming that's destroying his kingdom. He's a strong man, but one who's stronger has come. That's why Jesus immediately goes on from saying, your your argument makes no sense. Let me tell you what's happening in verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he indeed may plunder his house. What happens every time an exorcism is performed by Jesus? What happens every time Jesus drives out a demon and sets one of those poor people free? Jesus is plundering something that belonged to Satan. He's taking away something that used to be his. We learn that from a very early age in in our Reformed churches when we learn to confess the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. I had the privilege of hearing a couple of our children recite that to me this week. It was very encouraging. So I encourage all you boys and girls to keep working at question and answer number one. But what does it remind us? That we've been delivered from the tyranny of the devil. That Christ has set us free. That's the nature of his work. And that's the mission that God has come to do in the world. That's what the wonder of of demons being driven out is testifying to. It's giving us a window into that supernatural reality. Here has come a kingdom that's stronger than that evil kingdom. Here is a kingdom that can resist that kingdom that the rest of the world has not been able to resist. That kingdom outwitted us from the beginning and has outpowered us ever since. But now here has come one who cannot be outwitted. When the temptations come, he resists them. And here is one who cannot be outpowered. When he resists the power of the devil, he binds him and he takes what's his. That's what Jesus is saying is happening. That's what the kingdom of God represents. That's what exorcisms are allowing us to see. I like how one commentator put it. Exorcism not only exhibits the power of Jesus, it also reveals something of what is happening at the level of of the supernatural power struggle that underlies the earthly ministry of Jesus. Jesus' control over demonic power speaks of the collapse of the kingdom of Satan in the face of the coming kingdom of God. This is a sign that the kingdoms are collapsing. The resistance is collapsing in the face of the strength of the Lord of might. This is not being done by the power of Satan, the adversary. This is being done by the power of Christ, the anointed. The one who is anointed with the Spirit of God, who Isaiah tells us is a spirit of might. He is mightier than the devil is. He has the power to tie him up and and take what belongs to him. That's what's happening. That's what these malicious accusers don't understand. This is the great good news of the kingdom of God coming. And that the Son of God has appeared to do His work. And John wonderfully tells us what that work is in 1 John 3.8. That the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
He's come to set the prisoners free. And he has the power to do it. That's the glorious good news of the coming kingdom of Christ. That's why he wants to say to them, your allegation makes no sense. He corrects the malicious accusers and he shows them their monstrous sin. He shows them to be monstrous sinners. Now he's going to turn to that accusation that you are possessed by the devil. Right? It, it, we've already seen how that, the opposite is true. That can't possibly be true. But Jesus wants to confront that point in particular. Because as we've said, what he's been doing is in the power of the Holy Spirit. He is not possessed of the devil. He is the possessor of the Holy Spirit. He's been anointed by his Father with the Holy Spirit to do this work. To say that this is not the work of the Holy Spirit, but of some unclean spirit, is a terrible blasphemy. And Jesus wants these monstrous sinners to understand the nature of what they're doing. um, And the seriousness of such a sin. And that's what he talks about in terms of this sin against the Holy Spirit. Verse 28, look at the form of what Jesus says. Truly I say to you. This is the first time he's used that formula in Mark's gospel. Whenever Jesus says something like that, he's telling us to pay attention. He's bringing to bear the full weight of the authority that's been given him by the Father. What he says comes with authority and cannot be ignored. The form of this statement is important, as is the content. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whoever blas- whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So what is this sin against the Holy Spirit? Um, Christians have been tremendously troubled by this question. Occasionally you will meet as a pastor someone who has convinced themselves that they have committed the sin against the Holy Spirit, that they're guilty of eternal sin and therefore can never be forgiven. Uh, Some people have wielded this sin in order to terrify and frighten tender consciences. My mom vividly remembers as a young girl being at a, at a Baptist camp and she heard the person give the call to come forward and she had already been baptized as a young girl so she didn't think she needed to come forward and so the person calling people to come forward said, now who else wants to come forward? And she had already been baptized so she didn't think she needed to come forward and be baptized again. And after the call was given for everyone to come forward, the person said, now all of you who have not come forward have committed the, the sin against the Holy Spirit. And she said she went home terrified that she had committed the unforgivable sin. Um, And it was only later when she finally confessed this fear to her father that he could sort of allay the fear and look to murder the person that had told her that. Um, Now, why is this here and what should we make of it? Well, to understand this, that was not a dig against all Baptists, just against this particular guy who I would like to find too. Um... But what, it, what is the point of this sin? You can't hope to understand it if you rip it out of this context. You can't hope to understand what Jesus is saying here. It's wedded to the context. right? When he says, here is what the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, he con- they conclude at the end, Mark concludes at the end, because they were saying, 
he has an unclean spirit. Right? The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, this unforgivable sin, can't be understood apart from this context. We have to think very carefully about what Jesus says here. Who receives this severe warning? Who is this message directed against? It's directed against scribes who are experts in the Word of God. They are experts in the Word of God. In other words, they're people who should know better. They're people who should know the Word and know what the Word says. And so when they came and saw what Jesus was doing, what did they see Him doing? What did they see God doing to these horribly demon-oppressed people? He saw God setting the prisoners free. And they should have known what that represents. Because Isaiah prophesied about God doing this very thing. What did Isaiah say in Isaiah 49? Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued, for I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. And then he says, then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. What had they seen? They had seen God contend with the devil. They had seen God contend with the devil. They had seen God do it in the person of His Son by the power of His Spirit. They had seen the captives being torn from the tyrant. The prey being taken from the mighty. And they saw it and they said, it's not the work of God, it's the work of the devil. That's deliberate unbelief. Deliberate, hostile, willful rejection of the work of God. That's what the sin against the Holy Spirit is. It's deliberate, willful rejection of the Word of God. And they should have known that that was the unforgivable sin. Because the Lord will not hold him guiltless who does this. They should have known better. And they willfully denied the work of God. You see why you can't separate the sin from this situation and really hope to understand it correctly? Why people have misunderstood and misapplied God's word and many Christians have tied themselves in knots worrying that they've committed this sin? This isn't something you do accidentally. It's calling God's work, calling God's work the work of the devil is a defiant act. It's a hostile act. It's a knowing rejection. Like how one person put it, this sin is willfully misunderstood. This sin is willfully misunderstanding and branding as devilish what in fact comes from the Holy Spirit. With your own eyes, you see the work of the Holy Spirit so clearly that you cannot miss it, but then you proceed to ascribe the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil. This is going too far. I like another person who said, it's not meant to frighten the tender consciences of those who think they've sinned against it. It's a warning to those who adopt a position of deliberate rejection and antagonism against the Lord and against His work. 
That's why I think people have rightly said, if you're worrying about committing the sin against the Holy Spirit, you haven't committed it. It's a deliberate act. It's a hostile act. So it comes as a true warning that we not be hostile or deliberately reject, willfully spurn the work of God, but it's not to frighten tender consciences. And Jesus helpfully corrects us about that too. And then briefly we come to his mistaken family um, and the correction he makes with them. This is a different group of people. They're not malicious. They're just mistaken. And you can see why they're worried that Jesus might be out of his mind. Uh, We can see something of the reason for their worry in verse 20. He went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. Right, the work of Jesus is ca- causing people to crush in towards him so much that he has to worry about being crushed by the crowd and prepare a boat so that he can kind of withdraw from the crowd to avoid being crushed by the press of people. They're pressing in on him so much that he can't eat. You can imagine his family hearing about these things or saying, what on earth is he doing? He's going to get himself killed doing stuff like this. One person said, Jesus' sense of mission, his urgent drive to minister to everyone, and his failure to eat and sleep properly led his family to this misunderstanding. Um, Some people have really recoiled. How could they think Jesus was out of his mind? Have you ever had friends or family members that think you're kind of crazy for being so devoted to Jesus? Have you ever had unbelieving people say or look at you as if you're crazy for being this devoted? I remember when I was going to quit my former job to, to go and be a minister, I could see it in people's eyes. Oh, good, you know, that's, you know, you need to do what makes you happy. But I could see they were thinking, you're crazy. You're crazy. It's not so, so dissimilar from what we experience now. So they send to bring him home. Let's get him home. Let's let him rest. Let's give him something to eat. Get him away from these crowds. Only problem is people are so crowded around him that they can't get to Jesus. They're outside the house and people are crowded inside. And the best they can do is pass word to him. And the word comes that your family is outside seeking you. And Jesus teaches us something important about what it is to follow him. He teaches us the true meaning of the spiritual family of God and teaches us by example that this needs to be our highest priority. He teaches us by example that the family of God takes priority even over our earthly families. And that's a really difficult truth um, because it's very, very hard. Right? We even have a saying, blood is thicker than water. What does that saying really represent? It means the blood of the family is thicker than the water of the church, thicker than the water of baptism. When it comes down to it, family matters more than our religious ties. That's what that phrase really means. And this can be a temptation. when We have to choose between loyalty to God and loyalty to family. It's a very difficult position to be put in. And Jesus shows us that he not only calls us to that, but he leads us by example. That he did that as well. He lived that out. Who are my mothers and brothers? My mother and brothers. And he looked around at those around him and he said, These are my mother and brothers.
And what he reminds us of is that whoever loses something to follow him gains something else. It's a hard thing to go against your family to choose for God. I can't remember where I heard it late, recently, but there was a man who had converted to Christianity from being a Sikh. And when he converted to Christianity from being a Sikh, his whole family disowned him and shuns him, has nothing to do with him. And this person said, you know, every Sunday that guy is the last guy at church. After everyone else has gone home, you can always count that he's going to be the last guy there closing the door. And why? Because he doesn't have a family anywhere else. The only family he has anymore is his church. But he has a family. And that's what Jesus is reminding us here. Everyone who leaves family for his sake becomes part of a better family, a bigger family, a more glorious family. Becomes part of the family of God. Right? Looking around at verse 34, looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. We come into the family of God of God. With God as our Father, with Jesus Christ as our elder brother, and with a family that expands to the end of the earth and to the beginning of the world, a family from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, a family that is a great multitude of people, united in faith, Chosen for eternal life. Whatever we lose to follow the Lord in this life, He restores it to us in far greater measure by bringing us into the family of our Father. By grace, through faith, we become part of that family. And Jesus is reminding us that whatever we leave to serve Him, we gain something far greater. It also reminds us in closing that Jesus is doing a work in the kingdom of God that is both destructive and constructive. That he comes to destroy the kingdom of Satan and to build the house of his father. And all those who turn to Jesus and come to him by faith become part of the family of God. May everyone here know the joy of being set free from the tyranny of the devil and being incorporated into the family of God. Amen. Let's pray together.